my mother instilled in me in this moment, something I take with me my whole life is what I call a possible mindset. You know, I call it that just, it's an empowered way of thinking that unlocks a life of limitless possibilities. This moment, knowing your darkest moment being like, fine, but what still is possible? What can I still create even from this dark moment? I mean, you can liken that to entrepreneurship, right? You start the business, you this, things going wrong. How do you pivot? How do you adapt? How do you evolve? What are those endless possibilities? Yo, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Build Your Network podcast, the only top-rated show committed to helping you grow your business, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Let's get into the show. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Build Your Network. Today, I'm super excited to be sitting down with Colin O'Brady. Colin is a 10-time world record-breaking explorer, speaker, entrepreneur, and expert on mindset. His feats include the world's first solo, unsupported, and fully human-powered crossing of Antarctica, speed records for the Explorer's Grand Slam and the Seven Summits, and the first human-powered ocean row across Drake Passage. Colin's highly publicized expeditions have been followed by millions, and his work's been featured by the New York Times, Tonight Show, The Joe Rogan Experience, and The Today Show. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Impossible First, and now The 12-Hour Walk, Invest One Day, conquer your mind, and unlock your best life. Colin regularly speaks on mindset and high performance at Fortune 100 companies such as Nike, Google, and Amazon, and at top universities, including Harvard, Yale, and UPenn. His TEDx talk has nearly 3 million views. Guys, you know it's going to be a good interview when the bio by itself takes like three minutes just to get through uh, <laughs> some of the high-level things that, uh, that these people have gone through. So I'm super, super stoked today to bring on Colin. What's up, bro? Welcome to the show. What's up, man? Great to be here with you. Thanks so much for the lengthy intro. Yeah, of course. So I want to jump right in here and build a little bit of context for those listening because some of the stuff that you've done is, is pretty incredible. So I want to know what goes into you know what goes into the forming of your mind at a young age to prompt you to do some of these you know kind of more uh, outlandish things that you've done as an adult. So let's go back, 12, 13 year old Colin. Talk to me about what life was like back then. Yeah, you know it's uh it's it's been an interesting journey. I think just like just like in business, just like in life, things are iterative, right? Uh, I love you know Steve Jobs says you, you, know, you can't. Can't connect the dots going forward, but you can connect them going backwards. Uh, yeah, you look back at it. I grew up in Portland, Oregon. Um, wasn't uh, didn't have a lot of money as a kid, but had parents that were big dreamers. You know, they uh, I was actually born on a hippie commune in Olympia, Washington, with my mom invited thirty of her hippie friends over and on a futon, and she birthed me. And she also played Bob Marley Redemption song on repeat. So uh, you could say I came into the world in a somewhat <laughs> untraditional context, just starting off unconventional. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, 12, 13 years old. You know, I was I was always an athlete. Uh, swimming and soccer were kind of my main sports. Um, in terms of the outdoors, really, you know, like I said, we didn't have a lot of money, but my dad used to always be like, yo, the outdoors are free. And growing up in Portland, Oregon, you know, you got a lot of access to the outdoors. So, you know, we drive 30 minutes outside the city and go to a trailhead or an alpine lake and things like that. My dad was an Eagle Scout. So I think that there's probably some uh, sort of some essence of of that filtered in there as I think about these massive expeditions and adventures that I've now been on and completed. And then also interesting from the that age, since you, since you put 13 out, there was an interesting turning point in my childhood, kind of from the world of business, which is my parents, they worked in the, the health food grocery store industry, basically, which, you know, when I was born in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, that was kind of on the fringes, right? Like sustainable, organic, like these are not words getting thrown around by everyday people in that moment. It's kind of this hippie niche thing. And they've kind of been on the, the cutting edge of, of bringing that into more of the mainstream. But when I was 13, you know, they stopped working their normal 
kind of literal grocery store jobs and said, we want to start our own business. And they started a chain of natural foods grocery stores um, in the Pacific Northwest, which you know, well beyond when I was out of the house was pretty successful for them financially. But the part that I got to witness as a kid wasn't the, the financial success, but was them sitting there with a dream, starting a business, hustling. Like literally my dinner table conversations, 13, 14, 15 years old with them, sales forecasts and spreadsheets and bouncing ideas off you know, the literal kitchen table you know, business and bootstrapping it every step of the way, taking risks. And so when I think about my life, not just through adventures, but following your dreams, following your passion and building businesses, which is something I've passionately done as well. I definitely think that 13-year-old Colin um, definitely learned a lot um, from just observing that as a kid. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Huh? What was education like for you guys in your household? Was it something your parents really like pushed you into or pushed you towards? Or was it very much like still in that unconventional vein? Yeah. So I went to public school. I actually went to Montessori Elementary School for a couple of years. But um, most of my education was public school education, downtown Portland, you know, but education was a value, just kind of like an important value. I ultimately went to Yale. So I have an economics degree from Yale. So you could say education was a high degree at that level. But funny enough, that was... From who? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But well, that is funny you say that because I... Uh, so I, I was a swimmer in college and I was recruited to swim and play soccer. And the Yale swim coach called me uh, as the beginning of my senior year of high school, kind of when the recruiting process kicks up. And my, my mom hands me the phone. The Yale, the Yale swim coach is on the phone and says, Hi, this is the the coach, the Yale swim coach. And my response was, and I was being dead serious. I was like, I, I literally said, Yale, I've heard of that. Where is that? And my mom's just like shaking her head at me, like, <laughs> you that's not the opening line when these guys call you. Or maybe so, it is. Maybe yeah, it is. or maybe yeah, it is. It all works exactly. out. Yeah. yeah. So I, I went there and and that was ultimately a, a great experience, a great education, no doubt. But honestly, it was also a massive cultural sh- shock for me. You know, a p- public school kid from Portland, Oregon, you know, shows up in New Haven on the Ivy League campus. Uh, in the end, great friends, great relationships, great education. But it was also uh, a massive kind of fish out of water moment for me, um, just because obviously there was a lot of differences from where I was coming from uh, to, yeah, to no be kidding. there. No kidding. What was it? Was it a large adjustment period for you? Is you feel like you kind of cut your teeth socially? in that first year or two? Yeah. You know, like I'm kind of a precocious, I was a precocious kid. I, you know, I have probably overconfident times, particularly at that point in my life. I was really young when I started college. So I was in just had turned 17. I actually skipped third grade. So I was super young for my grade, but I kind of thought I knew everything. Looking back, I realized how immature I would probably was, but um, it was a culture shock, but also my personality is kind of a little bit of fake it till you make it. At least at that phase of my life, I'm kind of like, Oh, this is normal. Oh yeah. yeah you know, whatever. But like in the back of my mind, I was like, what the hell? <laughs> Where am I? For sure. It took an adjustment. When you go from growing up and, you know, just going to public school and then you go to a university like Yale, I can only imagine there's an adjustment from high school where you're used to being kind of, you know, the top performer in most things to going to somewhere like Yale and you start realizing like, oh, every person here, that's like the prerequisite just to get into this. Well, yeah. And even so, it's funny because I never really heard of prep school. Like the only context I heard of prep school in was like someone got sent away because they like did something bad. (laughs) Like it's just not the same sort of culture in Oregon or in the Pacific Northwest as it is in the Northeast. And so I went to this prep school, went to that prep school. And I quickly realized that meant that these kids had been studying their asses off really hard on a whole other level than I was (laughs) used to. Uh, So that was an adjustment period for sure. But, uh, you know, it's all worked out. Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do? at that time in your life? Or were you just kind of like, let's see where this road takes me, the major in economics. I know I probably want to be in business at something or somewhere. I don't know if I want to start one. 
Where were you in terms of like what you want to do with your career at that point? You know, ultimately, I think that 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 untraditional upbringing sort of paired with this education was an interesting inflection point in my life, which was the aperture was a little bit wider for me on kind of like the expected path, uh, so to speak. Um, you know, I, again, starting out there, my freshman year, people were like, well, you got to get the investment banking internship. You got to get the consulting internship, you know, that kind of stuff. And again, not, not trying to be an idiot, but I was kind of like, what? Like I, it's, I didn't have any role models that had done that. Right. It's not like my uncle, my, my dad, my, my friends, but you know, best friends, father, mother, whatever, were doing these jobs. But that was the case for so many of my classmates, right? They were like, oh, this is, this is the thing that you do with this degree. This is the next like, step on, on this kind of like paved ladder, corporate ladder, so to speak. And so much to the surprise of a lot of my classmates, they were like, okay, so you're doing the internship and you're going to get the thing and we're going to get the signing bonus when we're 21 and move to New York City and whatever. And I honestly was just like, nah, I'm good. Like, no, not not for me. And people could were shocked, particularly because the the money that was being offered around this 2006 pre credit crisis in Wall Street. You know, you know a lot of still obviously a ton of money on Wall Street, but like even pre crash, you know, kids are getting offered 120 grand out of college, a twenty thousand dollars signing bonus. Like, you know, that that's real money for anyone, let alone you know 21, 22 year old kid. And I just looked at that and I said, maybe at some point I'll do that, but that doesn't appeal to me. But people say, great, what are you going to do? There's always people recruiting us for these jobs. And I said, you know, I'm going to take a backpack and a surfboard. I've been painting houses in the summer. I've saved up a few thousand bucks. I'm going to buy a one-way ticket and, and see how far I can stretch a few thousand dollars bumming around the world. And I, and I give a lot of credit to my parents. You know, my parents have been incredible influences, but it also would have been easy. And there's certainly a lot of parents that have been like, are you kidding me? You just got this education. Like, go put it to use. Like, dude, you're going to go bum around the world by yourself. Like, what, what the hell are you talking about? But they, they, they weren't that way. You know, they, they said, great. You know, they, they believed in both the traditional education in the classroom, but also the, tr- the education of, of the world, the education of adventure, the education of actually mixing it up, getting yourself in tough spots and having to get out. And I'll tell you what, you know, this was a time 2007, it dates the story a little bit, but I was traveling without a cell phone. You know, you were, there was an internet and Wi-Fi everywhere. You know, I was having to make do with meeting people. I, I hitchhiked through the entire country, New Zealand, slept on floors and couches in Fiji, Australia, uh, Southeast Asia. But then it actually led to a massive tragedy. And what ended up being a huge turning point in my life overall, which is I found myself on this beach in rural Thailand and there were these guys jumping a flaming jump rope. And I was like, oh, this looks like fun. Maybe 22-year-old kid without fully formed prefrontal cortex. Like, well, what could possibly go wrong here? In an instant, my life changed. I tripped on the rope. There was excess kerosene. It sprayed my entire body. My body lit on fire to my neck. And I actually had to jump into the ocean to extinguish the flames, but not before about 25% of my body was burned, predominantly my legs and feet. And I'm in the middle of nowhere in Thailand. I'm in an island in the Gulf of Thailand. Uh, so instead of an ambulance ride, I had a moped ride down a dirt path to a one-room nursing shack, basically, where I ultimately I was I was so beat up they couldn't move me. So I underwent eight surgeries in this rural uh, area of Thailand. There was a cat running around my bed and across my chest. I mean, it, you know, not where you want to be with any injury, but particularly an injury like this where infection uh, is a massive risk and, and other things. But the worst part about it was. There was a moment about four or five days in where the doctor, the Thai doctor walks in and he's just, he's just being blunt. He's not trying to be mean or anything. He's just trying to be honest. He's like, look, Colin, I hate to tell you this, but you will probably never walk again normally. Your ligaments have been so badly burned in this fire that you're probably never going to regain full mobility in your ankles, your knees, et cetera. 
And, you know, the, there's one thing, the physical pain is something, you know, you break a bone, you get scraped up, you know, you burn in this case, it sucks. But the emotional pain of that was just a whole other level. Like I go from being this athletic, you know, kid with a bright future to who, who am I if I'm not going to be able to walk again normally? And that just that that downward spiral goes pretty deep. Now there is a, a again, I mentioned my parents, there is a heroine to the story, which is my mother. She shows up on like day four, or day five, kind of around the same time period. And she tells me now that she was crying and pleading with the doctors in the hallways for good news. And I can imagine what it'd be like to be a parent in this state. But she actually never showed me this fear. Instead, she came into my hospital every single day with this huge smile on her face, like this huge air of positivity, just being like, yeah, this sucks. You got yourself into a bad spot, but like you've got a full life ahead of you. What do you want to do when you get out of here? Let's set a goal. Like let's visualize a bright future. And I like, at first didn't want to play along. I was like, so beat up. She just got kept at me. Positivity, positivity, positivity. And she said, close your eyes, picture something. So I closed my eyes this day in the hospital and she sees me smile. She goes, what'd you see? And I said, oh, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I just saw myself crossing the finish line of a triathlon. And I know she could have easily been like, yeah, I said, set a goal, but like <laughs> the legs and the burnt, like maybe like something a little more realistic. But instead she was like, great. In fact, I think you should start training right now. And she yells, she goes, hey, doc, doc. She yells over at the Thai doctor, my son's training for a triathlon. You need to bring him in some weights. I have this picture, this like grainy picture <laughs> of me with 10 pound dumbbells in my hands, waist bandaged from the waist, up, bandaged from the waist down, both legs. And this Thai doctor looking at me like I'm some crazy idiot American. I'm like, hey, doc, I'm training for a triathlon, man. And he's just like, yo, someone needs to knock some sense in this. Yeah, kid. like I don't think you remember our conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but in the end, I mean, it was a huge turning point in my life. You know, I, I'm, I'm passionate about talking about mindset. I do a lot of public speaking around that. My new book, The 12-Hour Walk, is, is the subtitles, Invest One Day, Conquer Your Mind, Unlock Your Best Life. Uh, we can talk more about what that's all about. But my mother instilled in me in this moment, something I take with me my whole life is what I call a possible mindset. You know, I call it that just it's an empowered way of thinking that unlocks a life of limitless possibilities. This moment, knowing your darkest moment, being like, Fine, but what still is possible? What can I still create even from this dark moment? I mean, you can liken that to entrepreneurship, right? You start the business, you this, things going wrong. How do you pivot? How do you adapt? How do you evolve? What are those endless possibilities? So fast forward, it takes me several months to finally get released from Thailand. I'm still bandaged up. I get carried on and off the plane. I'm in a wheelchair when I get home. Slowly, I learn how to walk literally one step at a time. But I'm finally like, yo, I got to get out of my parents' basement and start my, my career. So I do take a job, not an investment banking job, but a commodities trading job in Chicago. And I, I take a commodities trading job in Chicago. I'm literally wearing slippers when I take the interview because my feet are still badly burned. I can't even wear shoes. The guys are making fun of me, but they take pity on me, I guess, and hire me anyways. <laughs> but I, I joined the local gym. I trained for this triathlon. You know, I'm walking a little bit now. I'm jogging a little bit now. And I finally, 18 months after being burned in this fire, I raced the Chicago triathlon. Finished the race, which is amazing. But to my complete and utter surprise, I don't actually just finish the race, but I actually win the entire Chicago triathlon placing first out of nearly 5,000 other people on the day. Real quick, can you, what, what are the distances on that, on the triathlon? <laughs> yeah. So this is an Olympic distance triathlon. So it was a mile of swimming, 25 miles of biking and 6.2 miles running 10 K. So that's a standard, what's known as the Olympic distance. You know, the moral of the story isn't like, oh, so it turns out I'm a superhuman athlete. I'm just a freaking badass. And like, what, I mean, that's not, that's not like, it couldn't be further from the truth. What I realized is that we have these inflection points in our life. And I think the most important muscle any of us has is actually the six inches between our ears, our minds. And my mother in this dark phase 
taught me this important lesson. And had she not instilled me with that, I know where my head was at. at. I know the darkness that was going to envelop me. I certainly wouldn't be sitting here with 10 world records. It's, it's important to know, like I've set 10 world records now with those legs. Those weren't rare records I set. And then I got burned. Those have all happened on the other side of this. And so on one hand, I wouldn't wish the pain of my burn accident on my worst enemy. But on the other hand, I look at it and go, man, I learned some of life's greatest lessons overcoming that adversity, moving through that and allowing that now to be, you know, fuel my gas tank, so to speak, to uh, push me to higher heights. Yeah. Yeah. Literally. (laughs) Real quick on just as a side note, what does it look like to be able to train for something like that and actually win? I like there's right. Cause there's a difference between like, oh, I finished something and it's a great personal milestone, but to come into a triathlon, it's your first one and you beat everybody. <laughs> were you, were you expecting those results at all? Like when, during your training, were you training to get like the best time or did you just get out there and then you're like, I actually feel really great right now. I mean, you know, I was training, you know, I've been a, you know, elite athlete as a swimmer, but I never biked or run competitively. And most of this was just a personal goal for me. So I had no idea. I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to win this. In fact, when I crossed the finish line, I, I still didn't know that I was going to win this um, because the way triathlon works at a big race like that is you can't have 5,000 people all dive into the water and then they you drown each other. So you, you do it in waves of like 100 people spaced out every five minutes. So people are starting anywhere over a three-hour period of time. And people are finishing anywhere over a three-hour period of time. And then at the end, obviously, you're, you're the when you start and when you finish ends up being your time. And so I knew that no one had passed me at the end of that. But I was like, whatever, there's thousands of people out here. I've never done this before. So uh, my grandmother uh, lived in Chicago. And so she, she meets me at the finish line, you know, gives me a nice, oh, grandma hug. Oh, congratulations. You did great. You know, whatever. We go get breakfast. And then I'm walking away to pick up my bike in the transitionary and I hear my name getting called over the loudspeaker. And my first thought is, shit, what did I do? Like, did I, did I break a rule or did I like step off the court? You know, I'm, I'm getting disqualified or something. The guy's like, calling a brain. I finally walk up. I'm like, what? And he's like, we've been calling your name for the last five minutes. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. It's like, you won. And he hands me this plaque. It's like first place overall. And I'm like, wait, what? So I literally didn't even know until I finished it. I did. I literally, uh, in a kind of interesting twist of fate, uh, another guy in the financial industry who was a friend of mine, not someone I was working for, but a mentor of mine, became a mentor of mine. He found out about the story not long after. And he said, man, this is incredible. And I said, I've always wanted to be an Olympic athlete. And he actually offered to become my first sponsor, which by the way, was far less lucrative than you know other professional sports or the, the, the career path I was on, but just enough to sleep on some couches and race and trade my bike. So I went in and actually basically quit my job on Monday, uh, quit the commodities job and, and became a full-time uh, professional triathlete. I raced triathlon for the next six or seven years all over the world, 25 countries, six continents for the US national team, which again, was a pretty large departure You know, in the same part and parcel of being at Yale with the economics degree and not taking you know, the, the iBanking or consulting jobs. The same thing I had this, okay, finally get my foot you know, my career is going in a positive direction. I get this opportunity. I'm like, all right, peace. I'm out. Moved. Yeah. yeah, I'm done. I'm going to go do this other thing. People are like professional triathlon. That's not like a career. That's like a hobby, man. I'm like, it's an Olympic sport. And they're like, yeah, but still, that's not like, I mean, like, yeah. where, but play this out. Like you do this, even if you made the Olympics, like, okay, you're 30 some years old and you can swim, bike and run fast. Like what's that going to do for you in the long run? You know, I've been able to make a uh, I've been able to do very well for myself in business over the years, but it's been untraditional. It's been it's been by following my heart, following my passion, pivoting, evolving, shifting, 
building businesses, building these world record projects, but, uh, but it hasn't been the most traditional or linear path, that's for sure. Okay, so I know you said that you have started and exited a couple of businesses. Where along the way did those come in? You know, during yeah. the triathlon stuff after? This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. You know, talk, talk me through that timeline. Yeah, for sure. The most recent exit happened last year. So I was an eight-figure exit of a events company that I started. I'll bring it back because I know that this, obviously the name of the show is Build Your Network. So there's like the story of my life, man. Basically, I raced triathlon for six or seven years. Um, I get some decent support here and there, but I'm just covering costs. And I finally, I'm like, I'm like, I want to do something bigger. And so I set this goal for myself and it's something I'm pretty much pretty novice at, which is mountain climbing to see if I could set the world record for something called the Explorer's Grand Slam. So that's the climb the tallest mountain on each of the seven continents, Everest, Denali, Kilimanjaro, et cetera, as well as go to the North and South Pole. But in world record time, you know, no one, you know, 50 people had done this, but they did it in five years, 10 years. And I was like, can I do it consecutively back to back? Boom, boom, boom. And if I do so, can I drum up some like media attention and some sponsors and whatever? And I also want to start a nonprofit that was all around inspiring kids around health and wellness, which ultimately I've had over a million students enrolled in those programs over years. But my wife and I dreamed this up. My wife's been my business partner for a long time. We dreamed this up. And then we get back to our one bedroom apartment. And we're like, we do a little spreadsheet. Like, so how much does this actually cost? Just the logistics, like getting to Everest, North Pole, South Pole, getting dropped off, helicopters, you know, all this, this shit that goes into doing some ridiculous thing like that. And we quickly look at a spreadsheet. It's like 500 grand, half a million dollars. <laughs> and we've got like, we're in our late 20s. Surprised, I've been racing triathlon, which makes no money. I've got like our full life savings. We liquidate everything's like 10 grand, like period. Yeah. And like, this is the moment where most ideas die, right? Like you're yeah. like, and again, 
it's that limiting belief mindset, that mindset that the entire 12 hour walk book is about a way for people to overcome this mindset. But more than anything, it's like, you're looking at it and you're like, okay, cool. So that was a fun little dream, but like a half a million dollars to go climb some mountains around the world. And you're like, you know, nobody, no one gives a shit about you. Like, how is that going to work? But instead the possible mindset says, you know what? Those are limiting beliefs. And I can see all the reasons why this doesn't work. But the possible mindset opens up the limitless possibilities of like, okay, but how could we do this? What do yes. we have? What, what assets? What bullets do we have in our chamber? No matter, maybe they're not bullets. They're like BB guns. You know, like just, but we got something. What do we got? Okay, yeah. we got 10 grand. We got 10 grand. We got the internet. We can start emailing random people. We can like stalk people on LinkedIn or whatever. What are we going to do with the 10 grand? Well, the first thing we do is we say, Let's put up a legit website. You want to raise 500 grand? Like, you better look like this is a real thing. And so we did that. We went to a creative agency. We'd never done that before. The creative agency quickly told us that it would cost, you know, 50 grand or whatever to do the thing. But they took pity on us based on, you know, because we wanted to build out a brand, an idea, and all this kind of stuff. They took pity on us, like, okay, we love this nonprofit idea. We love the couple of young hustlers. We'll do a little bit of this for pro bono. And you pay us 10 grand for it. So we have this website. And I always joke with my wife in that moment. I was like, so that's our whole life savings. Like, what if no one cares about this project? Like the likelihood of someone giving us half a million dollars is extremely low. And she kind of looks at me like, yeah, well, at least we'll have a cool website. (laughs) (laughs) So for the next 18 months, we hustle, man. Like we knock on every door, both literal, figurative, show up at every cocktail party, shake every hand, you know, just the sniff of a lead, like someone being like, oh, I heard my friend's best friend's cousin's uncle worked at Intel four years ago. Maybe you should have a coffee with him. And, you know, like just like chasing the wildest of, of, of loose ends. And it doesn't get us that far. I mean, we to be perfectly honest, you know, we, we raised a little bit of money, um, but we're still many hundred thousand, several hundred thousand dollars short. And in two months, I'm supposed to be leaving to embark on this because we had to set a date. Like you got to leave. There's a certain time window, weather windows where you can even do these mountains and set it up. And we've got a date on the calendar. We have enough to pay for like the first expedition, but there's eight other ones that we literally just straight up don't have the money, time, whatever. We've told everyone, every person for a year, we're doing this, we're doing this, I'm doing this, I'm leaving on this date, like whatever. My buddy says, dude, come to this spin class with me at this local 24-hour fitness by your house. And I'm like, Bro, I'm a professional athlete. I'm not going to a Sunday morning like group fitness class at the whatever. Like my ego is getting the better of me at this moment. And he's like, I don't know, man. There's this woman. She's a she's a world record holder. I think you just like like to meet her. She's cool. You're trying to break a world record. He's a friend of mine. I'm like, all right, fine. So I show up, walk into the spin class. It's just like 55 year old woman. She's like already you're sweating because she's like hitting it hard before the class even starts. She's obviously super fit. And my buddy introduces me to where he goes, Colin, this is Kathy. Kathy had the world record for the 5K. And Kathy laughed. She's like, oh my God, Angela, are you bringing that up? That's a million years ago. I was like, in my, you know, I was 19 when that happened, you know, whatever, a long time ago. I'm like, wow, that's cool. She goes, tell, tell her about what you're doing. So I just give her this quick little 30 second spiel, you know, like, I, you know, I'm trying to climb these mountains. I'm trying to start this nonprofit, blah, blah, blah. This is why I'm doing it. Uh, she's like, oh, that's cool. And that's it. End of the conversation. Get on my spin bike, start spinning. And I'm thinking, why am I in this 24-hour fitness spin class? Like, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> get off my spin bike. You know, I'm wiping the bike down like everyone does in the class. Get their sweat off the, the seat and whatever. And she calls me back over. She goes, oh, wow. I've been thinking about that during that ride. That's so cool that you're doing that. She goes, my husband loves stuff like this. And she goes, you should tell him about it. And she, she waved this guy over from the corner of the room. They weren't next to each other before. They spin separately, I guess. That's how their marriage rolls. And she, he, <laughs> wa- he, he waves over. And she goes, tell him. And again, I'm like, 
I've told a thousand people this at this point. And it's like, it's just always a dead end. And I just like, you know, I rattle it off just like, oh, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, whatever. And the guy kind of perks up and he goes, this is cool. He's like, you didn't mention sponsors, but are you trying to like get sponsors for this or something like that? And I was like, yes, I am. In fact, we, <laughs> in fact, I am. And he goes, because the company I work for, you know, might be interested in, in supporting this. And I was like, great. What company do you work for? And he goes, I work for Nike. And like, I'm in Portland, Oregon. I think Nike for any professional athletes, like, you know, iconic of all kinds, but I'm yeah. from Portland, Oregon. That's like the global headquarters there. It's like yeah. the dream, dream, dream scenario. Right. And I'm like, oh my God, Nike. And he goes, he goes, yeah. Um, let me give you my contact info. Do you have a website or something? You can send it over. Uh, you know, well, I'm yes, like, I do. turns out I do. <laughs> then he wrestles through his gym bag and he's like, let me get you a card. Pulls out a card from his bag, hands it to me. I look down. Mark Parker, CEO, Nike. Wow. And oh my God. <laughs> obviously, it, it changed the entire trajectory uh, of this project at this point, the trajectory of my career, et cetera. I've thought about that story many times. Obviously, a huge turning point in my life. And you ask the question, it's easy to go, well, shit, man, did you just get lucky? Like, you just got lucky. You met freaking Mark Parker in a spin class and Nike sponsored your first project. Like, did you just get lucky? And there's a little bit of luck there, but I love something my mom said to me a long time throughout my life. She goes, luck comes to those who are prepared. You make your own luck, right? Which is, I don't know, was I lucky that 18 months before that I started knocking on doors? Was I lucky that I like put my life savings into a website? Was I lucky that a thousand people said no? Here's the thing. A thousand people said no. Thank you for all those thousand people who said no, because they helped me refine my pitch so that when I was pitching and I didn't even know I was pitching, I actually had a cohesive thought and message and thought and, and process and elevator pitch apparently came out smooth. So the point being is, man, I know this about building your network. A lot of my career, in fact, most of my career has been built on relationships, has been built on shaking hands, meeting people. But here's the thing. It's easy to get stuck into, and I'd love to hear your point of view on this, Travis, but it's easy to get be like, oh, this is an important contact. I got to go talk to this guy or this woman or that or whatever. Like That's important. The thing about this story is I thought I was just talking to a guy in a spin class, meaning yeah. there's a lesson in treat every single person you are around with common decency, show your passion, show your excitement, whether it's this person sitting next to you on the subway or you're in a fortune 100, you know, corner office, you know, pitching like that is the passion. That's the abundance mindset that ultimately generates energy to you over time. Not just trying to like fake it to be like in the right room with the right person. This obviously that strategic things are important, but I think there is something about just putting your whole heart on your sleeve, no matter what instance you're talking to, because you never know who, who you're talking to in that moment. Yeah, dude, I second that 100%. Because like you said, it's just, it's just a matter of putting yourself in the right situations enough times, meeting the right people, and having a good attitude that people can get on board with. You know what I mean? Because like, it, it's, tough. it's tough sometimes when you're, when you're in the middle of that, when you're in the thick of it, and you're feeling burnt out, you're feeling exhausted, you're feeling skeptical, you're feeling negative about your odds, your chances, right? I mean, like you have like whatever, three, $400,000 left to raise and you got a month to do it. And you've been working on it for 18 months. You've been pitching hundreds of people. And it's like, oh, my buddy wants me to go to the spin class at the local 24 hour fitness to meet a girl who had a record in a 5k 25 years ago. Like this is clearly a dead end. It's going to be a waste of time. Nothing's going to come from it. I'm just going to stay home. Easily, easily, easily could have said that. And you and I probably wouldn't even be having this conversation today. Truth. But instead, you shed the ego and the goal still needed to be reached, you know, and it wasn't reached yet. 
And so you shed the ego, you put in the work, you went to the spin class, met the girl, left a good enough impression for her to introduce you to her husband who happened to be the freaking CEO of Nike. So, so punchline of the story is basically they end up sponsoring the whole thing. Yeah, they come on board. They bridge the gap of what I need. And multiple uh, six-figure sponsorship, essentially, to get the Yeah, and um, yeah, and it, and it was interesting because you know they wrote a big check, which was huge. And then there was a couple other people kind of waiting in the wings that was sort of like, if you get a big sponsorship, you know, there's kind of that domino effect. And obviously, yeah. Nike has that kind of sway. So I kind of was able to call back a few other folks who've been like, well, hey, now I... And they're like, oh, shoot, like they're on... You know, and that helped as well. But they did sponsor the project. I set my first two world records for the Explorers Grand Slam uh, and the Seven Summits. And, and that really got me going uh, on what I've been doing over the last six or seven years since then. Like I said, a solo first person across Antarctica, solo unsupported. I, I rode a boat across Drake Passage, the most dangerous ocean rush ocean crossing in the world from South America to Antarctica, an open hole rowboat, 28 foot rowboat, you know, several other uh, big records and, and big adventures and, and always done it in a way that's it's always about sharing those stories with others in a way to inspire and uplift, um, you know, whether that's, you know, from uh, an entrepreneurial side, whether that's from a, a business mind, whether that's from creativity, art, music, family, et cetera. I think there's just lessons to be learned when we step outside of our comfort zone, when, when, when we grow, when we push ourselves. Um, you know, for me, I, I've come to, and this is a kind of a core, core thought from, from my new book, The 12 Hour Walk, which I'm pas- super passionate about. My first book, the Impossible First was a New York Times bestseller. It's about my Antarctica, solo Antarctica crossing. And this new book is all about stories of adventure, but told through the lens of prescriptive advice. You know, how we can, how I've been in those limiting mindsets many times. I don't have enough money. I don't have the right friends. I don't have the right community. Um, what if I fail? What if people judge me? What if people criticize me? You know, all the shit that we've all had go through our heads multiple times if you've ever tried to do anything. But it's a way to combat that. And we'll, I could talk more about it, but it's, its central theme is really this invitation for people to take a 12-hour walk of their own. There's a whole origin story around it, but that's to walk out your front door, put your phone on airplane mode, and go for a 12-hour walk. No music, no podcast, nothing as a deep dive into your mind to reflect on what's going on. The world is so busy in this moment in time that we rarely take these moments to reflect, but these inflection points sounds like a lot, 12 hours, but it's one day, a one day that will imprint. I've seen this change people's lives in one single day. They come back from this walk and they are forever changed in a positive way. So my goal is to inspire 10 million people to take the walk. What I was saying before is I've come to kind of think of life on this spectrum of one to 10, kind of ones being our low moments, our lowest, lowest moments, like that burn accident in Thailand uh, or you know any other tragedy that befalls us or just you know the tough things that happen in life. Like we know these ones, right? And the tens are these highest highs. You know, my childhood's dream was to summit Mount Everest. I've been able to do that twice now, you know, literal mountaintops in my life, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't have, could be achievement, could be falling in love, could be the day your first child is born. Those are these tens. I've come to think, I, I realize everyone wants the tens. Who doesn't want to have the tens? Surf the perfect waves, ski the deep pow, fall in love, have the best sex, whatever, like the tens. Everyone wants the tens. But when I really think about my tens in my life, what I've come to realize is I didn't get there in spite of my ones. I got there because of my ones. My ones and tens, our ones and tens, everyone's ones and tens, they're connected, man. Like they're connected. But what ends up happening is no one wants to experience the ones. No one wants to grind for 18 months with a thousand doors slamming their face. They just want the moment where Nike writes the big check to them. And here's the thing. 
If you hedge against the ones, too many people, I would I say most people in our modern society live a life of what I call the zone of comfortable complacency between four and six. It's like they got a job, you know, they don't love it. They don't hate it. It's fine. You know, five every day, five going to the office, five, 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 or maybe in a relationship for a while. It's not toxic. It's not abusive. It's not like terrible, but it's just like you're cohabitating, you're coexisting. It's just like five, five, five. Because people are so afraid to be uncomfortable, to be outside of that comfort zone, to have a little bit of adversity in their life that they're willing to settle for the five. But what happens when you try to hedge against the ones is you take the tens off the table too. And so a big part of this 12-hour walk, a big part of my mission is spreading the word of saying like, hey, try, shake it up. Walking alone in silence for 12 hours, I'm guessing you've never done that before. Like that will shake, that won't be a five. You might think it's the stupidest idea you've ever heard, but I guarantee you it will not be a five. And every person I've known to get back to their front door is experienced a seven, an eight, a nine, a 10, a moment of fulfillment, of gratitude, of depth of mind, of spirit. And for me, uh, I think that that's where the juice of life, a life, you got to be at five some of the days, but a life lived only between that four and six, to me, that, 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 that's the worst life of them all. Yeah, it's a life that'll end up with probably the most regret, which is probably the most ironic part about it, right? Because people that live that type of a life would probably claim that the reason that they live life that way is so they don't have regret. But if you get to the end of life and realize that you never took any risk, you never did what you wanted to do, you never did what you loved to do, you never spend as much time with the people that you wanted to, and you realize that you could have had some control over that by just letting go of a little bit of, you know, quote unquote security, which at the end of the day isn't really security anyway, you know, like that, that's got to be a bummer to come to terms with because it's going to be a lot more difficult to make that 12 hour walk when you're 93 than it is when you're 36 or 48 or what. I did just have a guy email me. He's 81 years old. And he said he went 36 miles yesterday for his 12 hour walk. I was blown away. I'm actually wow. getting on a Zoom call because I want to hear his whole story. I do say the 12 hour walk meets you where you're at. So I don't care if you go for one mile. I don't care if you go for 50 miles. Take as many breaks as you want. The exercise is really a power of the mind. My 77-year-old mother-in-law did it by walking one time around her block, sitting on her porch in silence for an hour, and then taking another walk around the block. I've had ultra-marathon friends do 50-some miles, but neither one of those people are doing it better or worse. It meets you right where you're at. But what you said about regrets, I'm smiling big because the opening, the opening story in the 12-hour walk is a story from my life. That is, is I, I won't go too long form, but in short order, I got invited to give a speech to a big group of Wall Street bankers. You know, fifty or excuse me, five hundred, you know, person audience. You know, all from the biggest banks and hedge funds, etc. The night before, I get inv- invited to a small or intimate gathering with eight of the CEOs. These are guys that are you know billionaires, centimillionaires, you know, very very successful, wealthy group of folks in this Manhattan penthouse. And I'm known for always wearing a black t-shirt and, and, a, and a low top pair of Jordans and a pair of jeans, no matter where I go on the stages or whatever, I come as I am. So I show up in the lobby of this beautiful Manhattan building and I almost can't get past the doorman because the mm-hmm. doorman's like, I'm like, huh, I think I'm on the list for this dinner party in the penthouse. And he looks at me and he literally goes, hey man, if you're with catering, I've told you this a million times, you've got to use the service elevator. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like oh yeah, you know, whatever. But they do eventually let me up there. <laughs> We have this dinner. This guy, everyone's, you know, you can picture it. New York City, suited and booted, custom suits, $100,000 watches, whatever. And it's an interesting conversation. You know, these guys are asking me, oh, did you see any dead bodies when you climbed Everest? You know, whoa, you rode this boat across. How little boat out there. I've been on a big, huge, you know, yacht. And it's not, you know, I can't even imagine, you know, whatever. 
having some interesting conversations and some dialogue. But one of my favorite questions that I love to, you know, kind of turn the table on people is I say, look, Everest was my childhood dream. But what's your Everest? What was your Everest? I'm sitting there with these guys who are, you know, seemingly the most successful, you know, kind of the archetype of success and prosperity, right? Like these guys have won at life. And it's an older gentleman. The average age is probably 65, 70 years old in the room. And I asked this question, so what's your Everest? And I've asked this to school kids. I've asked this to business boners. I've asked this to people. People usually have an answer. And the room goes silent. Just goes silent. It's kind of one of those weird, like awkward pauses in a dinner that's been like high vibes. Everyone's chatting, whatever. And we've all been in like that awkward moment where like someone says something and you're like, oh yeah, blah, blah, blah. And so the conversation like stalls out and then just kind of picks up on a different track. No one says anything. I'm like, okay, well, that was a little weird, but whatever. So I'm getting up, the dinner's done, you know, dessert plates are cleared. I'm getting ready to go. And I'm about to walk down into the elevator. And this guy, the oldest guy at the table comes up and he, he grabs me by the shoulder gently. He's probably, I had a guess, 75, 80 years old. And he goes, hey, Colin, you know, thanks for spending the evening with us. It was a real treat. I just wanted to say something before you go. You asked us all a pretty important question back there. And I'm sorry for myself and the rest of us that, that no one answered. He goes, and he says it somehow without an ounce of bluster. I mean, this guy's, you know, very successful guy, but he goes, you know, I've made more money than you can possibly imagine in my life. He goes, but there's not a day, not a single day, this guy's 80 years old, that I don't go back to being a 14-year-old kid on, at summer camp on this rowboat in the Catskills and think back, how would life have turned out if I had had the gumption to ask myself that question? Not what's the Everest that what everyone else wanted me to climb or the world tells me is great, but what was my Everest? What was my Everest? And he looks at me going to your exact point and expresses this moment of regret as if he feels like he missed something. And it was so poignant for me. And there's a reason I opened the book this way of to say, Look, I'm proud of the, the the financial success that I've had in my life. And I don't think this guy was trying to vilify money. And the point of the story is not to say, well, it must be don't make money or don't have a career or whatever. Like that's not the point. But the point is, is that somebody else's life, living somebody else's and making certain choices about what you do or how you spend your time, you can end up on the top of the wrong mountain, man, quite literally. And getting to the end of your life at 80 years old with that regret that's a tough way to go because it's hard to turn back the clock. Now, I would say to somebody who's 80, well, you've still got a few years left, maybe, or maybe a decade, you know, what do you want to do with that time? But it's different than if you're talking to somebody who's, you know, in their 30s or 40s or still has a lot of time on the clock, so to speak. And that 12-hour walk is also a way to that, is a check-in. It's a way to say, look, I got a busy life. I got a career. I got kids. I got a job. I got a this. But if I take this one day and look in the mirror at myself in this silence, in the stillness. It's going to be hard. It's going to be outside of my comfort zone. We know in those moments, if we're walking down a path that's going to get us to be the old man at that elevator offering regrets. And no one wants to be that guy. No one wants to be that guy. So take that time. Take that time to look inward. And only you can answer the question of what that Everest is for you. The 12-hour walk. If you guys haven't already picked up a copy of this during this interview, please go do it right now. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Just go pick up a copy of this book and take the challenge. Um, I know something that I'll definitely be considering. Just got done after my foot heals anyway. I just got done with a, a 38-mile run uh, that a, a couple of buddies of mine and I did uh, like a week and a half ago and have some sort of uh, like torn or partially torn ligament in my foot. So I'm kind of limping at the moment. But yeah, that was about nine hours uh, that that it took, took us to do that. We started at midnight and went to about 9 a.m. And... Um, you learn a lot about yourself. In, uh, no doubt. Uh, something, doing something like that. So I got to ask you this question before I let you go, bro. 
of all the things that you've done, what would you say was the most physically challenging? And then what was the most mentally challenging? Physically challenging, gosh, hard to make it more challenging than pulling a 375 pound sled solo a thousand miles across Antarctica. (laughs) That definitely tested my physical limits. And what was the most difficult about that was what I was doing was unsupported. So no resupplies of food or fuel. And that's why my sled was so heavy, was full Mm -hmm. of food. But I was on a 3,000 calorie deficit from day one. So I was burning 10,000 plus calories. And then 7,000 was the most I could carry in my sled per day and still get to the end. And I got to the end of my last bite of food. So pulling that at 54 days, 54 days alone in Antarctica. And people had tried this before me. A guy had died after 71 days a couple of years before me. He didn't make it to the end. Somebody ran out of food and had to get evacuated. So it's right on the edge of the sort of physical limits of like literally not enough food or calories in your body to have the expenditure in this harsh place of Antarctica that's, you know, trying to kill you with its minus 40 degree temperatures and all this. So physically, of course, that was a deep cut mentally as well and has formed a lot of my mental resilience um, and, and formed a lot of stuff. But I would know the one that gets made mentally, again, it's so hard to pick from all these things, but the robo Drake Passage. 28-foot rowboat, 40-foot swells, the roughest ocean in the world, open hole. We're rowing in this, me and my teammates, we're rowing in a sequence of 90 minutes on, 90 minutes off because we have to keep the boat in perpetual motion. You can't just stop. You'll like fly backwards with so much currents and, and storms in this, in this ocean, 750-mile channel. And we're soaking wet. The ocean is actually freezing. It's 32 degrees Fahrenheit, but the salt water makes it till it doesn't freeze, but there's icebergs in the water. And so the waves are crashing us in the face. And how after so many days, you're sleep deprived, you're wet, you're cold. That sounds physical. That's emotional, man. Like that is the mental breaking point. There's a reason why, you know, water torture is a thing and sleep deprivation is what they do to torture you, the prison camp or whatever. And so that that definitely put, put the limits on the, the, the mental for sure. So crazy stuff, bro. It's been a really fun conversation. I look forward to doing it again, maybe sometime in person, but I appreciate you coming on the show. Please, seriously, if you're listening to this, go pick up a copy of the 12 hour walk. Um, Follow Colin on, on social media. Um, Anytime you follow somebody that, uh, that does the things that Colin does, you're going to find yourself constantly inspired and motivated. And, uh, and one thing I think that I've, I've found is that you find yourself um, putting putting your daily struggles into perspective uh, when, when you hear about the things that the human body and the human mind can endure. It makes you really take a second look about some of the things that maybe you've let overwhelm you that shouldn't be, frankly. And so I, it's always been a super helpful thing for me to follow uh, people, people like this. So please go give Colin a follow. Tell him you heard about him here on the show. Colin, thanks so much for spending some time today. Sorry to go a little bit over, but uh, this is some really good stuff. So I appreciate it. It's great, man. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey, hey, thanks for listening to this episode. That's it for today. As you all know, this show is completely free. Our only ask is that if you found anything valuable in this episode or in any of the episodes you've listened to, then share it with somebody else and leave us a quick rating review in whatever platform you're listening to right now. It would be super, super helpful for us. Uh, So that's it for today, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. Catch you next time. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, 
Visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 